This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. This week on Face the Nation, friends and family say the president is pumped and energized following his impeachment. But publicly, he questions whether he really was impeached as plans for a Senate trial get bogged down in politics. Congressional Democrats push for a speedy impeachment came to a screeching halt just moments after the vote was announced. Next stop, the Senate, at least according to the Constitution. But the Founding Fathers had no way of knowing just how partisan politics would become by 2019. Here's Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell. A highly unusual step. Speaker of the House continues to hem and haw about whether and when she intends to take the normal next step and transmit the House's accusations over here to the Senate. I'm not sure what leverage there is in refraining from sending us something we do not want. But Speaker Nancy Pelosi wants to know what the Senate trial plan is before she acts. Do you run the risk, as some Republicans have said, of looking like you're playing games with impeachment if you hold on to these articles for too long? I said what I was going to say, Nancy. We don't know the arena that we are in. Frankly, I don't care what the Republicans say. Adding to the confusion, the president's interpretation of the situation. They had nothing. There's no crime. There's no nothing. There's no impeachment. What are we doing here? The world is watching. We'll get the latest from two senators, Republican Roy Blunt and Democrat Chris Van Hollen. Then we'll talk with Minnesota Democrat Amy Klobuchar. She's one of five senators running for president and making plans for a lot of round-trip travel between Iowa and Washington next month. Let me be honest, Ed. Maybe if the impeachment proceeding wasn't there, I would not be doing 20, whatever it is, 23, 27 counties in three days. But such is life. I'm a mom. I can do two things at once. All that and more is just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin today on that impasse between the House and the Senate, and there's also one between Republicans and Democrats. Missouri Republican Senator Roy Blunt is here, as is Maryland Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen. Good morning to both of you gentlemen. Uh, Senator Blunt, first off to you. Uh, Do you agree with the president's declaration that he hasn't actually been impeached? Well, I've actually heard some constitutional scholars suggest that you're not impeached until the House sends the articles over. I don't know that it's a distinction worth arguing about. The House will send the articles over. We are going to hear this case, uh, both from uh, the House managers and the president's counsel. I I would argue with the president's counsel for the first time they get a chance to make their case, and uh, I believe we'll be doing that in January. So there's no question for you that Speaker Pelosi will transfer these articles. You know, I actually think this is a mistake for the Speaker to continue to dwell on this issue. I don't think it's worked out that well for them politically. I actually don't think the Speaker, who has great power in a lot of cases, 
has the power to decide not to send over right. the determined will of the House of Representatives. They have voted. They have voted on two articles. Uh, they need to come and defend those two articles. Well, you know, back during the Clinton impeachment trial, Republican and Democratic leaders sat together and planned out in a bipartisan way how the trial would take place. Why can't that happen this time? Well, you know, I think we, because of that, we have the, the, uh, the plan out before us that worked before. It probably wasn't quite as easily achieved last time as it seems like it was, but it seemed to work last time. Uh, and my guess is eventually that's the plan we pursue, that we start, that we let uh, the House uh, managers have the time they need to present their case against the president, and the president has the, his, his counsel has the time they need to present the reason they don't think that case adds up, uh, and then we see what happens next. So why can't you commit now, then, to calling witnesses? What you're suggesting is that there would then be a vote on right. whether to approve Which having witnesses. Which is what witnesses. happened last time. This time, Democrats are arguing the trial needs to be fair, and that includes the certainty of hearing from witnesses. How can you have a, a credible trial without that? Well, every one of the Democrats that were in the Senate the last time that are here now voted against witnesses the last time. So this is, you know, this is a political process, no matter how you describe it. You can call it a trial, but it's a trial where half of the jurors can decide that the chief justice is wrong mm -hmm. and we're going to go in a different direction. It is, it is a political process. It always has been. It always will be. One of my concerns, uh, Margaret, is that in, in the first 180 years of the history of the country, uh, we went to presidential impeachment exactly one time. And here in the last 46 years, we've gone to it three times uh, and never with a result that removed a president because right. of the impeachment itself. And I, I think it's a mistake to take this lightly or to, to act like you can send a half-baked case over to the Senate and then it's the Senate's job to try to figure out how to do what you didn't do. There's nobody you... the Senate could call mm -hmm. that the House couldn't call. There's no privilege. But that there the is Senate... a Republican majority in the Senate. Um, and, uh, and this is where uh, the president has argued he wants to hear his case and get a fair shake. He complained about and not and getting that in the House. Case, but I so, think what but, you but don't he wants do, witnesses. Have you persuaded you the president do, not to push for that any longer? I don't know that the president is persuaded not to push for that. And there may be a time when we decide that witnesses are essential. But the witnesses that the House didn't call would have the same privilege in the Senate that they had in the House. I think the House sending over a very vague two charges uh, to the Senate and then assuming it's the Senate's job to try to make something out of that takes a process that we're already taking too lightly, impeachment three times in 46 years, mm -hmm. and taking it even more lightly. The, the world we live in now... It's more certain, more likely than not that a president will always have a House at some point in their presidency mm. controlled by the other party. A majority of that of the other party can send articles of impeachment over. I think we need to be sure that we set a standard where they have to make sense before they're sent over, not leave it up to the Senate to try to make sense out of a case that the House says they clearly made, and yeah. now they say, well... We clearly made this case with absolute certainty, but now we need to have the Senate find more information. Your former Republican colleague, Jeff Flake, uh, put out an op-ed where he wrote this as an open letter to senators like yourself, saying essentially the entire body is on trial, not just the president. Uh, and he said, don't be complicit. Quote, you might also determine that the president's actions do not rise to the constitutional standard required for removal. But what is indefensible is echoing House Republicans who say the president has not done anything wrong. He has. Does Roy Blunt, potential juror, believe that the president's phone call was perfect? Well, I think the people that listen to it that should know and hear a lot of these calls have generally said there was nothing wrong with the call. But what do you believe? But I think that's not... Here's what I believe from Jeff Flake's letter or Jeff Fake's editorial, he also said, would you reach the same conclusion if Barack Obama had done exactly the same thing? And the answer is, yes, I would reach the same conclusion. We were constantly asked if for Barack eight Obama years, on a phone call with another world leader suggested an investigation into someone who also happened to be the front runner from the opposing party, you would be your party, you would be fine with that? 
Well, I will tell you that for eight years, we were constantly challenged on my side. The president should be impeached for this. The president should be impeached for withholding records with Fast and Furious. The president should have delivered right. the... Uh, but on the, this particular... Yeah, let me, let me make my point here. And, and I resisted that. And I understand what our Democrat friends have heard for three years now on this topic, because we heard it for eight years. One of the articles of impeachment is the president resisted giving information to the Congress, which is exactly what President Obama did. It's what President Clinton did. It's what President Bush did. Every president's done that. I wouldn't have been for impeaching any of them for asserting their privilege to make you go to court to prove that you really needed the information the president had. That's one, that's one half of the cases of impeachment right there. Senator Blunt, thank you very much Great for Great to be time. with you. And we now turn to the other side of the table, literally and figuratively, Maryland Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen. Good to have you here. It's good to be with you, Margaret. Uh, so you just heard Senator Blunt lay out his position. You were one of the first senators to publicly float at least this idea that the speaker hold on to those articles um, and not immediately transfer them. Can you explain the strategy? What, do you, what is this leverage? Sure, absolutely. And first, just to be clear, the, the conduct we're talking about from President Trump uh, has no parallel in the conduct of anything that President Obama or President Bush did. And his claim of absolute immunity is unprecedented. No president has ever claimed that. So Speaker Pelosi is doing exactly the right thing. Uh, she is focusing a spotlight on the need to have a fair trial in the United States Senate. And it's especially necessary when you have Mitch McConnell, Senator McConnell, who you quoted earlier, saying publicly that he's not going to be an impartial juror, even though that's what the oath will require, that he's going to work in lockstep with the president, who's the defendant in this case, and that he's already said no to calling fact witnesses uh, that have direct knowledge of what's at stake in this impeachment. So you're so trying to divide the Republican caucus over these two weeks? We're, we're trying to engage, first of all, the public in a conversation, because almost every American would agree that to have a fair trial, you need to have witnesses. I mean, what's a trial without each side being able to call their witnesses? And yes, there are going to be a number of Republican senators um, mm -hmm. who are going to have to decide on whether or not to call these witnesses. And after all, as you indicated, President Trump says he wants witnesses. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if he's trash-talking or not, but let's have some witnesses. If it was such a perfect phone call, then send on Mick Mulvaney down to talk about that perfect phone call. Mm -hmm. Send down John Bolton. What are they afraid of? Do you think Democrats will get on board with what Senator Blunt laid out, which is the, the quote-unquote Clinton model of having debate, then voting on witnesses? I think Democrats want assurances up front that this is going to be a fair trial and that you're going to be able to call witnesses. There mm -hmm. were witnesses called in all the prior uh, trials, uh, most recently the, the Clinton impeachment. And, and is Speaker Pelosi in lockstep with Schumer on that one, that the articles won't be transferred until there is a, a promise of witnesses? Look, I think we have to take this day by day. Okay. I think what Speaker Pelosi is doing is focusing attention on the need for a fair trial, and a fair trial means you get to call your witnesses. Every American knows that that's what a trial is all about. How can it be a fair trial if you can't put on the rest of your case? There's already so you haven't decided how you will there's vote overwhelming evidence. yourself? I will wait to hear all the evidence. Uh, I think the, the House has made a very strong uh, case for impeachment, but I will reserve final judgment until all the evidence is, is in. The president says he wants to put forward his case. I don't know why, you know, others aren't saying, okay, mm -hmm. Mr. President, send down your witnesses. That's what so, we want. For people at home, though, they, they see and hear the math on this, that it takes 67 votes to actually remove, eject the president from office. And it is incredibly unlikely that those votes will exist, right, at this point, looking at the math as it stands. So given all that, what is the purpose of the standoff over how the trial is conducted, if you know the outcome? Well, the reason that Republicans are so deathly afraid of sending down these fact witnesses is because after they testify, um, under oath, they'll have to raise their right hand, just like all the witnesses in the House did, and testify under penalty of perjury. It's going to be much harder for Republicans to hide behind this myth that this was a perfect phone call. Mm -hmm. And it will make it harder uh, for those senators to vote for acqui acquittal. 
Uh, and that is why they're so afraid of having witnesses called. I mean, why else? Why, why wouldn't you send your witnesses down to, to tell the truth under penalty of perjury? I want to also ask you about something you were working on that was tucked inside uh, a, a bill that the president just signed off on. And this includes giving him more abilities to put different kind of sanctions on North Korea. We know U.S. intelligence is watching and preparing for the possibility of an upcoming long-range missile test by North Korea. Do you believe the president will actually use the sanctions you gave him the authority? Or is this... I mean, you have no way to force the hand here. Well, we need to tighten the sanctions regime on North Korea. Uh, The United Nations has documented the fact that it's kind of like Swiss cheese. There's a lot of leakage in this. Mm -hmm. And so this legislation will require the president to put in secondary sanctions. So if you're a company or a bank in China, mm-hmm. you will now face U.S. sanctions if you keep doing business with North Korea. He's required to do that in 120 days. Now, he can exercise a national security waiver. We have said on a bipartisan basis it would be totally wrong to use those waivers and let uh, North Korea off the hook unless you can show us measurable progress toward reaching our goal of denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula. Uh, the time for photo op summits is mm-hmm. over. Um, it's time to be serious and let the North Koreans know that we're going to tighten these sanctions. And what we know is, to date, the diplomacy has not resulted in That's any right. of what you just laid out as the premise for suspending or not enacting these sanctions. That's so right. So you think basically it is inevitable that these new sanctions are going on North Korea in the next few weeks? Yes, I do. I think within 120 days, these will be imposed on North Korea. and we're Because the s- question is, if they carry out long-range missile tests, we don't know what the Trump administration will do other than go to the United Nations. Do you think that this time clock on diplomacy is ticking? Uh, look, the, the clock is clearly ticking right now. It's been ticking for some time uh, now. You have North Korea now engaged in their saber-rattling uh, once again. As, as has been the case from the beginning, we need to, need to engage China. Uh, during this period where we've had these summits uh, with North Korea, uh, the president has essentially allowed China uh, to go ahead and mm-hmm. allow trade to go back and forth between China and North Korea and, and Chinese banks. So this will put an end to that. Um, mm-hmm. It will tighten the sanctions, and I think that's necessary uh, in order to really get a serious negotiation uh, at the negotiating table. If I could just okay. really briefly say, with we respect to, to the, the we trial, have to leave it there. if it's not fair, there's going to be no way that Trump's going to well, be able to go around saying and, and he was we'll exonerated. And we'll have plenty of debate over what fair <laughs> okay. means in the rest of the show. Absolutely. Thanks to both of you senators. Thank you. And we'll be back in one minute with another Democrat, Senator Amy Klobuchar from Iowa. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. The senator from Minnesota, Amy Klobuchar. The... Friend, and tonight my voice will be as solid as my carefully rehearsed Midwestern mom jokes. You know, we're coming up on a presidential election year when Saturday Night Live starts their show with a primary debate. Right now, the real Senator Amy Klobuchar joins us from Council Bluffs, Iowa. Good morning to you, Senator. Good morning, Margaret. I think Rachel Dratch does a pretty good job of playing me. I enjoy it. (laughs) Well, you came out swinging at this last debate. You got a lot of attention. Uh, Do you think this is a a more aggressive but still moderate Amy Klobuchar? Um, I have been the same since the very beginning when I announced my candidacy in the middle of that blizzard in the Mississippi River. Um, I think it's really clear we need someone leading this ticket who's going to bring people with them instead of shutting them out. And the point 
I made in the debate uh, is that I've been consistent in my views. I have passed over 100 bills in the United States Senate during a really difficult time. Uh, and I have won in the reddest of red districts and won with suburban and rural voters and Republicans and independents and a fired-up Democratic base. I think that's a good case mm -hmm. to be made. And I think the other thing I did uh, in this debate was just make the case of how I want to be the one debating Donald Trump. And I think it is more than just the nitty-gritty of policy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also a value statement, because so many people want a values check on this president. They want someone who gives them a decency check, a patriotism well, check. Well, and, and there is the very real check that you as a senator may have to deliver in this impending Senate trial uh, to continue the impeachment process. But you've said your campaign's not going to get in the way of your job as a senator. You can't be in two places at once, though. And Iowa is really make it or break it. How is the impeachment trial going to impact your campaign? Uh, well, uh, look at what I've just done. I finished that L.A. debate. We had a little after party, got up at 4 a.m., did the shows, got to Iowa, went on a bus tour, and we've already done 15 counties in a day and a half, ending last night at midnight, um, and had record crowds at every little town that we went to. Uh, that's how I'm going to do it. I don't need a lot of sleep. I work really hard, and I also have endorsements of more electeds and former electeds than anyone in this race, in this mm -hmm. primary field. So we're going to have uh, in the state of Iowa. So we are going to have so many people showing up to help me if I'm doing my constitutional duty, which comes first as a U.S. senator. Uh, my husband uh, was just in Nevada. Uh, my daughter, I've got the governor and the lieutenant governor of Minnesota. Everyone's volunteered to help out because they get uh, that uh, we're going to need some help, and I'll have to Skype in for town hall meetings. There is modern technology. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to find a way to do this. Well, it, Skyping in for a campaign, uh, that's, that's an interesting choice because of what you're juggling here. But is your campaign going to ask the DNC to reschedule the upcoming debate? It could fall right in the middle of that trial. Well, my first belief is we have to have the debate. And if for some reason it doesn't work, sometimes there's breaks in the trial, and even when you looked at past impeachment trials, there were breaks in the day so we could get there. If that day doesn't work, there's plenty of other days. We know we don't have uh, Sundays when we're doing this, and there's going to be other days after that. We may just have to have the debate closer to the Iowa caucuses. Is that being discussed right Iowa now? Debate. Um, I, I don't know. I have made it very clear uh, that there should be no excuses. I'm ready to debate at midnight if that's what we have to do. <laughs> We have to have a debate before the Iowa caucuses. That would be to my advantage if it was at midnight. I'd be happy. <laughs> well, uh, Senator Schumer uh, has asked Leader McConnell um, to allow witnesses at this upcoming trial. Uh, and we know the decision on what the, the outlines of this are going to look like are still an open question. How do Democrats force witnesses to be allowed, people like Mick Mulvaney and Secretary of State Pompeo? Well, some of this is going on right now where Speaker Pelosi is trying to get some sense um, from uh, the majority leader of the Senate, uh, Mitch McConnell, about what's happening. And I know Senator Schumer had a meeting with him. I'm not sure it went that well. Uh, but in the end, uh, Mitch McConnell was going to think about it over the holidays. Uh, look at what we're dealing with. I couldn't believe the number of people that came up to me about this. First, they were focused, of course, on the investigation and the impeachment. But now they're saying, why wouldn't we have witnesses at a trial? You know, they're thinking like law and order. The first half, there's an investigation, and then you have a trial. And if the president is so innocent and claims he's innocent, why would he not allow, just like Richard Nixon did, the people uh, that were closest to him to testify? And I think we had some is that, pretty is that shocking news, Margaret. Is that the Democratic mm -hmm. strategy to take these two weeks of break to put pressure on the Republican caucus to, to back away and allow witnesses? I think it's not a strategy. It is a fact. It is a you can't have a trial if you don't have the key witnesses. You can at least have a thorough trial. Look at what we just learned on Friday from a document request. And that's it's this guy named Michael Duffy uh, who worked for. Um, uh, Mick Mulvaney over at OMB, he's the one that sent the email to a bunch of people and said to withhold the aid to Ukraine. He sent this email, I have it in my hands, 90 minutes after the president of the United States 
talked to president of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And this is what he says. He says, given the sensitive nature of the request, I appreciate your keeping the information closely held to those who need to know. What does that mean? What a great question. That's a question I want to have answered. Well, the so way it was on allow... hold before that date, though, what do you think that shows but you? But the point is, why did he send this email just 90 minutes after the president made this call? Why would this email go? If the president is so innocent and shouldn't be impeached, why is he afraid to have these people come forward? That's what people are asking me when I'm at these town hall meetings. All right. Senator Klobuchar, thank you. And we'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Joining us now is Mark Galley. He's editor in chief of the evangelical magazine Christianity Today. He called for President Trump to be removed from office, raising questions about whether evangelical support remains rock solid. And he joins us now from Chicago. Uh, Mr. Galley, as you know, your editorial has gotten a lot of attention, and I want to highlight some of what you said here. You argue that evangelicals like yourself uh, may like the president's platform, but you think he's grossly immoral. You described him as a near-perfect example of a human being who is morally lost and confused. He's abused his authority for personal gain, betrayed his constitutional oath. Other members of the evangelical community, including uh, Billy Graham, your founder's uh, grandson, or son, have, have denounced this. Um, yeah, that would be Franklin Graham, yeah. Yes. Billy, right. Billy Graham founded, uh, as we point out here, your publication, which is why it was so significant to have Franklin Graham rebuke you. Um, is the call for President Trump's removal growing? I don't know. I mean, uh, in one sense, my my call for his removal was uh, on the order of hyperbole in this regard. Uh, the odds of that happening either by election or uh, a Senate are actually probably fairly uh, slim at this point. What I'm really arguing in the piece fundamentally is that the president is unfit for office. Now, there is, that may be a, dis, a difference without a, a distinction without a difference. But the point is, and I'm not really speaking politically, I'm making a political judgment about him, because that's not our expertise at Christianity Today. Mm -hmm. I am making a moral judgment that he's morally unfit, or even more precisely, it's his public morality that makes him unfit. Because all of us, anybody in leadership has, uh, uh, none of us are perfect. We're not looking for saints. We do have private sins, uh, ongoing patterns of behavior that reveal themselves in our, in our private life that we're all trying to work on. Mm -hmm. But a president has certain responsibilities as a public figure to display a certain level of public character uh, and public morality. And my, the point of my argu uh, argument is not to judge him as a person uh, in, the, in, the, in the eyes of God. That's not my job but to judge his moral, his public moral character and, and ask, has he gone so far that the evangelical constituency that we represent, can we in good conscience do the trade-off anymore? He right. gives us what we need on pro-life, but he's got this bad character. And my, the fundamental argument I'm making is we crossed a line somewhere in the impeachment hearings, at least in my mind, that, no, that, that balance no longer works. We're, we're dealing with a person who we... But when I, when I raise these questions often to, to Republicans who consider themselves uh, people of faith, what they say is God picks imperfect vessels, right? And the, the transaction here is that he is delivering on those platform issues. It, is it solely uh, the uh, abortion policy that keeps the evangelical community cemented in their support? Because our polling shows that, that you, sir, are an outlier. 79% of white evangelicals say President Trump is doing a good job as president. 
Yeah, I think the, uh, the pro-life issue is just one of many. Uh, religious freedom for Christians overseas especially would be another. Uh, you know, there, there have been books written about what's going on with the conservative evangelical support of Trump, so that's not something we can quite get into here. It does go fairly deep. I think what I'm mostly concerned with is the fact that it's like, like you've mentioned a previous uh, guest, it's the unwillingness of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, I'm not, again, I have no animus against them, mm-hmm. but it strikes me as strange that a, for a people who take the, word, the teachings of Jesus Christ seriously, teachings of the uh, Ten Commandments seriously, that we can't at least say publicly and out loud in front of God and everybody that this man's character is deeply, deeply concerning to us and in my judgment, has has crossed a line, and I no longer think he's fit to lead the United States of America. And I don't say that politically. I mean, my job, our job as Christians is to love our neighbor. We want the the United States, everybody, left, right, black, white, uh, of every variety of sexualities, we want them to prosper. And I'm saying that Given the moral character, the public moral character of our president, that's not going to happen. It's, it's likely to degenerate very radically over the next... Mm-hmm. If it, it has already degenerated, and it's time for us to put a stake in the ground and say no more. So you see the next election as sort of a referendum on the moral fiber of this country? Well, I don't know that I would put it that way. I am, I am saying to my evangelical brothers and sisters... Take your interest in politics and put it aside for a moment, and let's start thinking about morality. And do you really think? But if there's no other Republican running on these platform issues, if President Trump is the only person that on these issues you have laid out is so key to your community, uh, some Republicans just find it an impossible alternative to vote for a Democrat. Yeah, no, I I grant that. I grant that. (laughs) I'm saying what I think, and I about the only person I represent is me and. Maybe my magazine, not for that much longer since I'm retiring in a few yeah. days. <laughs> uh, you know, what you do about the fact that he's morally unfit, there are a lot of political options for that. And I, I don't really have a whole lot to say. Some are going to say work for his conviction at the Senate. Some are going to say overturn him at, at the election. Others are saying that that's all impossible. We would need to figure out a third strategy. Yeah. I don't have a strategy. I'm not a po- po- political right. person. Uh, you, the questions you are asking people on your show, you guys are amazing how much stuff you know and the nuances. You guys figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you are, uh, of course, an influential voice within the evangelical community, as is your publication. So we wanted to get you to weigh in. Thank you very much for your time, Thank sir. Thank you for the time. I appreciate it. Our political panelists are on their way in, so don't go away. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Some analysis from our political panel. David Sanger is a national security correspondent and a senior writer for the New York Times. Sungmin Kim covers the White House from Capitol Hill for the Washington Post. Jamel Bowie is a CBS News political analyst and a columnist with the New York Times. And Ramesh Panuru is a senior editor at the National Review and a columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. Ramesh, I want to start with you to pick up where we left off with the Christianity Today um, editorial. And this quandary that's laid out of judging the president of the United States as someone who should be a moral leader, something was talked about quite a lot during the Clinton impeachment as a failing of that president. Why aren't Republicans openly talking about this? I mean, this editorial that was written caused a firestorm. I mean, it really got a lot of attention. Why is this new that it's being talked about by Republicans? Well, in some ways, we've been talking about nothing but the president's character for three years now and not just 
evangelicals, not just conservatives, but all of us, that in a way is the central issue in American politics. Not many op-eds calling for his removal from office. But that's, that, that's right. So we now have, of course, this impeachment controversy, which has raised the stakes on the entire argument. And there's been a huge evolution in these views. Um, evangelicals, as late as 2011 in polling, white evangelical Christians were saying, the public's, the president's character is important. A president without sound character can't be a good president. That has completely changed over time. And we're now in a, we're now in a situation where the parties are so polarized around this particular person. People are switching parties on the basis of whether they support this person, not on the basis of any particular view, right? We've seen that in the Congress. We've seen that with Justin Amash. We've seen that with Jeff Van Drew. Amash leaving the Republican Party, Van Drew coming to the Republican Party, just solely on the basis of what they think about President Trump. That is the number one polarizing issue now. Well, you know, Jamel, Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend and and 2020 candidate, talked about this a little bit, and he has incorporated more sort of discussion of morality and religion in his own campaign rhetoric. Are are Democrats seeing an opportunity here? Because even Mark Alley said, I don't know what to tell people to do politically (laughs) in terms of, you know, this moral quandary. Uh, Vice President or former Vice President Joe Biden has made this kind of the central point of his campaign that he is running to restore dignity to the White House, right, to restore um, a sense of normalcy and also to get someone out who he views as immoral. And I think some Democrats, especially the more moderate candidates who are not trying to outbid each other with policy proposals, are, are probably going to take this line more and more. I want to make one comment about sort of the relationship between Trump and white evangelicals. I think one thing that's important to note in this conversation is not just to see change in opinion about how white evangelicals view political leadership, but, and this is detailed in a great book called The End of White Christian America by the Public Religion Research Institute's um, uh, Robert Jones, that Over the past five years, white evangelicals have come to see their position in society in battle, right? They have come to see themselves as being on the losing end of a culture war, on the losing end of a a political change, of demographic change. And so in that context, President Trump may be vulgar and immoral, but he appears to be at least a defender of their perceived religious Um, and uh, ethnic interests, if you're going to think of white evangelicalism as being sort of like, not an ethnicity, but sort of like a national group, a kind of distinct demographic group within the country. Uh, Sungman, I mean, New York Times had a very long uh, read on fear and loyalty in the Republican Party. Um, And it was acknowledging that there are these sort of private conversations that I'm sure you've been part of, uh, as have I, of, of dissatisfaction, but fear of speaking out. Um, And it plays off the same idea. It does, because you've seen what happens to the Republican officials when they do speak out. Jeff Flake, the former Arizona senator, Bob Corker, the former Tennessee senator. I mean, there is a reason why they are former United States senators, uh, particularly for Jeff Flake, when he was one of the most vocal critics of, of President Trump and his conduct and his policies. His polling numbers just cratered, and he knew he could not run for re-election again as a Republican without that base of support in his party. Um, what, what's going on now, the, the president has such a lock on his party would, and you talked, at, I, I believe Patrick McHenry was also quoted in that article as saying he has this loyalty among the voters, which is why you've seen also uh, Republican lawmakers take different political stances, too, on policy issues that they may not have had at other times. You've seen the Republican Party evolve on the issue of trade under Trump and Trumpism, if you will, mm-hmm. on foreign policy. And I think a big question that we will be examining for years to come is whether Trumpism is kind of a blip on the radar of the right. history of the Republican Party, or if it's really fundamentally changing. David, one of the things that's unique to Trumpism is his approach on foreign policy, in that he's been fine with breaking some China because it's necessary on this impossible challenge with North Korea. He'd take a meeting with Kim Jong un, and virtually no other president would consider doing it, certainly none in the past. Um, he's now at this point where his centerpiece foreign policy issue is going to be tested in the coming days. What do you know about what North Korea is planning? Well, we don't know a whole lot about what they're planning, but we know a lot about what they've made, and we know a lot about what it is that they're saying. What they've made is probably eight to ten new nuclear weapons, or at least the fuel for those nuclear weapons, in the 18 months since the president had this signature trip. And by the way, the signature trip, as you and I discussed before, was a pretty brilliant idea to have the summit between these two um, 
uh, leaders. That had never happened before since the end of the Korean War. The problem is the president didn't prepare and he didn't really have a plan for what he would do if Kim basically used this to play for time. And that's which exactly what, Which happened. is what has happened. And now we know uh, that U.S. officials, um, they tell me, I know they tell you, they're taking this threat of ending the diplomacy seriously. They're hoping Kim Jong-un's year-end deadline isn't real. You know, what's surprising to me is that there really isn't a plan B. I was talking to White House officials, intelligence officials for a big piece we have in, in the Times today, and previous presidents, George Bush, uh, certainly uh, President Obama, had considered plans to take out a uh, ICBM on the pad. President Obama executed uh, a cyber operation against North Korea's missiles before they launched. It was only partially successful at best. But I don't see a whole lot of interest in the Trump administration in doing anything other than waiting for this to happen and then going to the United Nations. Well, Mm -hmm. that's back to the same approach that the president used to complain was the failed policy of Obama, Bush, uh, and and others. Mm -hmm. And Sugman, one of the things we talked about, Senator Van Hollen, is the idea that Congress is trying to give a few more tools here. Uh, There are a lot of things tucked into that NDAA the president just signed. Um, What else do we need to know of? Because the perception in a lot of the country is that nothing happened in U.S. Congress other than impeachment. But the president just signed a whole lot of things in the past 24 hours. He did. If you look, if you set aside impeachment, which is very difficult to do, the president on the policy front actually had a pretty good couple of weeks. He got his long-desired Space Force, the sixth uh, branch of the military. He um, he accomplished a major initiative that went a lot against Republican orthodoxy, which is the paid federal or paid family leave or parental leave for federal workers. He has a massive trade deal that had the support of Democrats and, and got the support of the AFL-CIO on board, and is, it will get ratified by large margins in the Congress. But I think with all the political oxygen going towards impeachment, it's, it is difficult for the president and his advisors to talk about his accomplishments. And you do see the president at campaign rallies and at other events try to talk up what he's done for the economy, what he's done policy front. But it all goes back to this question of impeachment. He mm-hmm. is focused on it. He is obsessed with it. He is clamoring for that Senate trial so he could, in his view, uh, perhaps exonerate himself, and that's going to be such a focus, and it's going to be hard for the other policy messages to break out in the next couple of weeks. We're going to take a quick break here, and we'll take a break. Be back more with our panel. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. We are back now with more from our political panel. As you can hear, I've got a little bit of a Christmas cold, too. Ramesh, uh, one of the things that got a lot of attention besides impeachment this week, and it takes a lot to break through that news cycle, is what the president said at his rally in Michigan right after the impeachment vote. When he, not for the first time, spoke ill of the dead, specifically this time, John Dingell, the former congressman whose wife is a sitting congresswoman, uh, Debbie Dingell, and he suggested that he was not in heaven looking down, but looking up from hell, and mentioned a lack of, perhaps, thankfulness on behalf of his widow for the fact he flew flags at half-staff following his death of the longest-serving congressman. Uh, this, this did get some attention, but is this another John McCain moment? I mean, has this just become understood as this is the way President Trump will continue to be? Well, the president's supporters sometimes laud the fact that he is willing to fight, uh, and he seems most eager to fight with people who are dead uh, and can't fight back. Uh, And whether that marks him as a strong leader is, I suppose, going to be a matter of opinion. But 
one of the reasons the president's numbers have been so much worse than the strong economy would suggest is precisely because of events like this in which he continually reveals a character that some people like but that most Americans recoil from. A separate thing about that event is that President Trump said, you know, uh, Representative Dingell should be thankful that I flew the flags at half-mast. And that reflects, I think, something we've seen throughout this presidency, which is that the president doesn't is not able to be able to separate himself, the person, from the office of the presidency. And so it's not that a, a lawmaker passes away um, uh, and the country flies its flags at half-mast because of respect from between mutual institutions, but that's the way we do things, but because President Trump has personally said we're going to do this. And transactional. And transactional, right, that he cannot seem to... And I think this mm-hmm. plays into impeachment, right? Like, he, he, he seems in some regards, genuinely bewildered by it all. Um, because for him, it seems, whatever he does, because he does it as the president, president and the presidency is merged in his person, cannot really be wrong, right? It can't be some sort of offense. And so when he's challenged on it, when he's held accountable for it, it's not a sort of... The reaction isn't, I guess I shouldn't have done that. It's a genuine kind of, what does it even mean for me to have offended anything? And the president said just yesterday, well, what does it mean? Because now he's claiming that he wasn't actually impeached because Speaker Pelosi hasn't gone through the process of transferring the articles from the House to the Senate. You heard two Democrats explain some strategy there. What is the reality? Well, isn't the phrase, if you're explaining, you're losing? <laughs> so sometimes it's, it has, uh, we've all kind of scratched our heads a little bit as to this latest tactic from Democrats, because it has been a little bit hard to explain. The, one of the arguments that they've given is that they're trying to exert more leverage to shape the Senate trial in terms, of, in terms that they find favorable, especially as McConnell's has been out there saying he's in very close coordination with the White House. But McConnell and Republicans have pointed out, so you're trying to get more leverage out of us by withholding something that we don't even want any. Anyway, so okay, go ahead. Mm. But some of the other um, some of the other explanations could be that um, they're trying to buy more time to make a public case that. Republicans are trying to do a sham trials and trying to build that public pressure on Republican senators to perhaps allow witnesses, per- allow the subpoenaing of documents. And also the other explanation that I've been told is to try and drive President Trump crazy <laughs> in, in hopes of maybe uh, driving, you know, kind of working him up a little bit and then maybe having Trump pressure McConnell to get the trial going right away on his, uh, and no matter terms, because we know for some time that the president has been really looking to the Senate trial, not only for an acquittal, but an exoneration. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've seen kind of the little pockets of irritation come out from President Trump recent days. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham met with him on Thursday night, and he told reporters that Trump is, quote, mad as hell that Pelosi is denying him the Senate, this uh, prompt Senate trial. He complained at a rally last night that Mm -hmm. um, it was so unfair that Pelosi was doing this. So clearly what the speaker is doing is getting under the president's skin right now. But how that actually shapes how the Senate trial is going to be is yeah. very yet to be seen. You know, David, we, we heard from kind of not someone you would expect as a defender of the president in terms of helpful messaging, but Vladimir Putin himself at a year-end press conference echoed a lot of the very same talking points that Republicans say when it comes to characterizing this entire basis of impeachment. This is about Democrats trying to overturn the 2016 election, that this is all a political sham. The most remarkable part about this was the president then tweeted out Vladimir Putin's statement on his (laughs) own Twitter feed, right? When was the last time you saw a president seeking the endorsement of an authoritarian running a, a country that is the most significant adversary to the United States. Who and, he's suggested and, and alleged to have ever, you know, to have some odd relationship with. He seems to endorse it by, again, tweeting it. That, that's absolutely right. And then at the same time, you know, uh, opposing in, 20, in a 22-page letter a uh, bill that's going through the Senate right now, sponsored by Lindsey Graham, that would put additional sanctions on Russia. So even in the midst of impeachment, they had they were tone deaf enough to basically oppose further sanctions. And, you know, this may get to the authoritarian issue that you were just discussing, because mm-hmm. if the president's having a hard time separating 
himself from the office. It may be in part because the leaders around the world that he admires the most don't separate themselves from the office, right? Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, Erdogan of Turkey, who he talks to a lot. Mm -hmm. All of them, the word of the president is basically goes unchallenged or you face a significant penalty. And that's pretty remarkable and tells you a lot about how the president envisions the job. And to many people, their concern is what happens if he then survives this and use that more. (laughs) That's a topic for a whole other panel. We're going to have to leave it there, David, and we'll be right back. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. That's it for us. Thank you for watching. And we want to wish our viewers Happy Hanukkah, which starts tonight, and a very Merry Christmas. Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Republican Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri and Democratic Senators Chris Van Hollen of Maryland and Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.